Hello, and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. Before we go to the future, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you're really going to like. If you like podcasts about science, which I'm imagining you do because you're listening to this one, you probably already listened to Science Friday. Well, now there's a new podcast out from the producers of Science Friday, and it's called Undiscovered. Undiscovered is a show about science, but it's really about the people who make science happen and the left turns, false starts, and harebrained schemes that happen along the way. Most science shows focus on the results of scientific inquiry, but sometimes the story of how scientists got to those findings is just as interesting. In my opinion, maybe more interesting. Undiscovered is a podcast about those stories. In each episode, hosts Annie Minkoff and Ella Fader introduce you to the kinds of stories that scientists share when they get together over beers after work. So check it out. You can listen by subscribing to Undiscovered on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit undiscoveredpodcast.org. That's dot O-R-G. Okay, let's go to the future. This episode, we're starting in the year 2035. For World Public Radio News in Washington, I'm Leon Fisher-Davis. Scientists have announced the first fully functional artificial womb. Researchers at Carnegie Temple University say they have carried a fetus to term for the first time ever, delivering a baby from the artificial uterus without complications. The scientists have named the baby boy Adam. In health tech news, the first company offering to develop babies in artificial wombs opened their waiting list today. The company called Stavia says they'll be able to accommodate a small number of couples in their trial run. According to a Stavia spokesperson, the company has already received over 1,000 applicants. Hello, you've reached Stavia the womb away from home. Para Español, a prima dos. If you know your party's extension, you may dial it at any time. If you're calling to speak with a certified womb specialist, please press 1. If you're calling to apply for womb space, please press 2. If you're calling to check on the status of your baby, please press 3. Please enter your baby's seven-digit womb code now, followed by the pound key. If you would like to leave a message for your baby, please press 1. If you would like to hear what your baby is listening to now, please press 2. This is what your baby is currently hearing. To change the soundtrack, press 3 at any time. The first baby carried to term in an artificial womb at the Stavia facility went home with her parents today. Amanda and Patrick Henderson were escorted by armed guards to and from the facility, but were able to retrieve their child without any incidents. In a press release, the family said they were looking forward to spending time with the baby girl, who they named Rokea. So, long-time listeners of Flash Forward might have found that future kind of 
familiar. And it is. It's actually the first future we ever traveled to on this show. A future where humans have invented artificial wombs. And this is a special bonus episode of Flash Forward, where we're going to go back and revisit that future. Because a new piece of research recently came out about artificial wombs. I'm calling this a Back to the Future episode. So let's start with that new piece of research. Scientists at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania recently published a paper in Nature describing an extra-uterine system to physiologically support the extreme premature lamb. I will post a link to the study on flashforwardpod.com, so if you want to read it, you can. But here's the basic gist. They removed eight lambs from their mother's wombs who were at 110 days of gestation. That's about the equivalent of 23 or 24 weeks in humans, which is right on the edge of viability. In humans, babies born around 23 or 24 weeks have a really hard time. The chances of survival can be slim, somewhere between 10 and 50 percent. So these researchers extracted the fetal lambs and moved them into something called a bio bag. And this is basically a very, very fancy plastic bag that has a tube going into it and a tube coming out of it. The tube going into the bag is supplying the premature lamb with amniotic fluid. And the tube going out of the bag is draining that amniotic fluid out. The idea here is to mimic a mother's womb as closely as you can by keeping the fetus in fluid rather than in air and cycling nutrients through the way that a womb would. After four weeks in the biobags, the fetuses were taken out of the system and put on artificial ventilators. And in general, these lambs did pretty well. One was even bottle-weaned and is actually still alive. A few of the others who might have survived were sacrificed for future research to see how the biobag might have impacted their development. You might have heard about this study. It was covered in pretty much every major publication, and most of the headlines read something like, Lamb fetuses can now grow in artificial wombs. Will humans be next? The answer to that is almost certainly no. Pigs might be next, or maybe monkeys, but it's still going to take a really long time before we see human fetuses in biobags. And when we do, it won't be growing babies from the ground up. No, 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 definitely not. That's, I mean, and that was another thing that Dr. Flake was very specific with in our interview, was that he's, you know, our goal for this is not, you know, it's not creating something capable of the entire gestation process. Our goal is creating something that's physiologically as similar to a uterus as possible um, and mimicking those conditions. This is Elizabeth Yuko, a bioethicist and writer who recently published a piece in the New York Times about the ethics of these artificial wombs. And she points out that there really aren't any people out there who are waking up every morning and going to work on an artificial womb with the express intention of making something that can sustain a baby from the very beginning. This technology is an extension of the technology that doctors are working on to save premature babies. Here's a fun historical fact. Did you know that some of the very first incubators ever used to help save babies were actually part of a sideshow at Coney Island? Yeah, there was a doctor, Dr. Martin Cooney, who was originally from Germany, and he didn't get the clinical support to practice there. So he came to America, uh, didn't get the—this was still so new, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you know— used in hospitals and when babies are born at a certain stage it just was taken for granted that they were going to die there was no um no hope really and so after setting up at at least one of the world's fairs uh one of the old Colombian expeditions he ended up um setting up shop in Coney Island and he operated there until I want to say 1939 or 1940 
uh, when the techniques he used were actually adopted into clinical practice. So rather than babies who were born prematurely in Manhattan being rushed to Coney Island, they were able to receive that type of care. Martin Cooney is a super interesting guy, and we don't have the time to really get into his background, but it turns out that he probably wasn't actually even a medical doctor at all. Um, I'll post some links about him in the show notes. But one of the interesting things about these Coney Island incubators is that some of the conversations they sparked we're actually still having today about artificial wombs. In fact, the debate about artificial wombs goes back to even before the Coney Island days. The word ectogenesis that is often used to describe these wombs comes from 1923, when a scientist named J.B.S. Haldane wrote a book called Daedalus, or Science and the Future. And in the 1920s, way before these incubators or lambs and biobags, there was a big debate about ectogenesis. In general, the big discussions around artificial wombs and ectogenesis happen in conjunction with waves of feminism. So this would have been in conjunction with the first wave of feminism, the you know 1920s, getting ready, uh, leading up to the right to vote. Um, and several authors, mostly British, all wrote different takes on what it would mean if we had an external device capable of the entire gestation process. And some of them took very positive standpoints, saying this will free women from the burdens of childbirth and labor and will mean um, more gender equity. And others took um, a much more negative standpoint, saying you know this is going to be the end of humanity, uh, there'll be no bonding between mothers and children, and this is kind of going to unravel uh, society as we know it. So what would happen if tomorrow a rogue scientist popped out of the woodwork and said, Ta-da! An artificial womb that we can use to incubate babies from start to finish. Well, it would be the usual kerfluffle. That's Lois McMaster Bujold. She's a science fiction author who's won the Hugo for Best Novel four times. No big deal. And in a number of her books, the characters have to deal with this technology. She calls them uterine replicators. The uterine replicators in particular came up almost as a side thing in my first story. And then I got to thinking about uh, what else can I do with this? At the very simplest level, Lois says that there would be some serious benefits to women. It instantly drops maternal mortality and morbidity to zero. No woman would ever have to die in childbirth or undergo severe uh, illnesses, eclampsia, preeclampsia, placenta previa. If you don't know these terms, you you need to go look them up. According to the United Nations, about 800 women die every day from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. And in some cases, women find themselves in situations where the pregnancy is life-threatening, but they want to keep the baby. Having these uterine replicators could allow for parents to potentially transfer the fetus to an artificial womb to continue that pregnancy. Of course, not all mothers would be able to afford something like that. It would first be adopted by the rich, which means that they would get to be the guinea pigs for the rest of us, uh, which, depending on how you feel about the rich, could be, you know, fine. Uh, you know, that's it's not all bad. And so the cost associated with this certainly will um, bring in class issues, as well as, I think, issues of race and gender and sexuality and all of those other things. This is Maureen Sanders-Stout. She's a philosopher who's written about the ethical quandaries that ectogenesis presents. You know, the equivalent of carrying a Gucci bag will be you have access to the artificial womb, you know, so you never have to get those stretch marks and you never have to have your breasts (laughs) uh, flabby in the way that they would be if you went through natural pregnancy. There are also some questions about how important the physical parent-fetus bond is for development. 
Now, it's clear that children can be raised by people who didn't carry them as fetuses, right? We have plenty of studies to show that adoptive parents are no better or worse than biological parents. But what about babies that aren't carried by a whole human? How important is it for a fetus to exist inside a full human body? Are there things that the human body is doing that we don't even know about, without which babies might suffer? The truth is we don't actually know the answer to a lot of those questions. But it turns out that those were the same questions that people were asking about incubators. The media discourse surrounding uh, this sideshow exhibit, basically, at Coney Island, uh, was very, you know, will the women be able to grow up and get married? Will they be normal? Um, you know, what, what will the products of these of these incubators be? And there's it, the... The arguments and both for and against are so similar and really haven't changed that much in the past almost 100 years. Premature babies do have health risks and can sometimes live with side effects, but they're totally well-adjusted humans. Or at least if they're not, it's not because they were premature babies. But what about the parents? What happens, for example, in a world of uterine replicators or artificial wombs to a person's reproductive rights? argued that if this technology would come about, that it would completely erode the right to abortion. And their argument is that the right to an abortion is the right to bodily integrity. It's not the right to secure the death of a fetus, especially if the notion of when is a fetus viable is eroded. You could imagine a scenario, for example, in which politicians decide that because artificial wombs carry a baby to term, abortions might no longer be legal. From an ethics perspective, Elizabeth says that that's really problematic. The notion that it's a solution to abortion is, I think, highly offensive to women because it just suggests that, okay, if you become pregnant and you you don't want to be, um, we will do what will most likely be a highly invasive procedure on you with or without your consent to remove that embryo or fetus and then finish gestating it in an artificial womb. So... I, I can't imagine a scenario where wherever this you know, forced fetal transplant situation would take place where it would be in any way acceptable. I mean, the woman consented to it, of course, and that's that was her option, or that was her choice, of course, but to, to just paint this as an overall solution, I think, is very problematic and a very much an oversimplification. The thing is that it's not like you could just snap your fingers and say, poof, the fetus that was once inside of you is now safely inside this artificial womb. No. It would involve surgery, and probably highly invasive surgery. Forcing a person to undergo invasive surgery is just not okay. You can't force someone to donate a kidney, right? Even if you could magically teleport fetuses into artificial wombs, there's actually another logistical question that I have. According to the CDC, in 2011, there were 730,000 legal abortions. If all of those fetuses were transferred to wombs and then birthed, That's a lot of babies that suddenly exist that need a parent. I mean, that's the population of Detroit or Fort Worth, Texas, every year. Those are both cities in the top 20 most populated cities in the United States. Who is going to be responsible for all of those babies? Uh, at the end of uh, end of the cycle on the uterine replicator, what you have is a baby, which requires maternal care. So what are you going to do about that? This is a problem that is frequently skipped over in science fiction stories because they don't want to deal with the messy bits. And who is keeping them from becoming test subjects or sold into slavery or something else really horrible? Sometimes tissue currently is removed from people's bodies and 
is used by the medical establishment to develop patents and other things, and sometimes patients don't even know this happens. And um, the legal system has traditionally ruled that, um, you know, that's a waste. So anything you leave behind, you kind of forfeit your rights to it. However, I think in this case, few women would view an embryo being removed as kind of like, oh, I just left a piece of my spleen behind or something. Probably there would be legal um, precedent, some kind of contract, you know, where you would be able to declare what you wanted to be done with it. And even if the fetus does have a set of parents, if that fetus is housed in a facility far away, who is in charge of it? If something goes wrong with the machines, who is liable for it? I think one of the first areas of law that would develop around this would be to create very clear, as clear as possible, kind of contracts at each phase. Lois is a lot less dystopian about this whole thing. This is not a technology to be alarmist about. Uh, I think it will be it will be used well and it will be used badly if it comes into existence. And I don't see why it couldn't. It doesn't require you know imaginary physics the way a lot of science fiction ideas do. Not that it's going to be uh, easy or simple or any of those things. But that doesn't mean that uh, that it isn't going to be wonderful for some people. Plus, it opens up who gets to be a parent, right? I mean, two men who want to have a baby often have a hard time, right? They have to find a surrogate or they want to adopt. And those are totally valid choices. But this might be another one. Men could suddenly find themselves having families without any women really involved. This is actually the entire plot of one of Lois's books. Ethan of Athos is about a planet called Athos populated entirely by men. And they survive in the long term by using uterine replicators and a bank of ovarian tissue that they brought with them when they settled on Athos. For the first time, this would break the female monopoly on reproduction. I mean, we've had a lot of science fiction stories about the Amazon planet, the planet of all women. You know. And so what would, what would happen if, uh, if it were turned around, you know, if you could have a planet of, of men without women, how would that work? You know, could it be a viable society? Part of it was just my snarky desire to make men do all the housework. So, you know, the guys would have to learn how to, uh, how to take care, which I, you know, I don't underestimate them. I think they could. Now, the chances of men taking these uterine replicators off to a new planet to build some sort of man planet is relatively slim. But here on Earth, these machines could facilitate a whole new kind of family. In fact, what it actually means to be a mother probably changes in this future world of wombs. Motherhood would just mean the person who secured the right to the infant once it was born, I guess. I think that's what it would be. Some people argue that opening up the concept of motherhood to more people dilutes it. Yeah, I've heard the argument that by having an actual device capable of the entire gestation process, it in some ways um, diminishes the role of pregnancy or, um, you know, makes it a commodity, yes, or something yeah, that can be bought or sold. Every year, we get better and better at keeping premature babies alive. And at the same time, we're working on all sorts of fetal creation technologies like IVF. So these questions are coming, and they don't have easy answers. And here's maybe the bigger philosophical question. How much of our human bodies do we want to hand over to technology? Like, I am concerned that we tend to look at technology as clean and, and, um, and more perfect and, you know, doesn't involve pain. And, and those things are true, um, but there are some things that perhaps are sacrificed as well. And one of them is the realization that life is messy and life is fragile and life is painful. 
One really interesting thing I found in re-researching this topic for this episode goes back to 1929. An X-ray crystallographer and molecular biologist named J.D. Bernal wrote this paper, and it's got a really great title. It's called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, an Enquiry into the Future of Three Enemies of the Rational Soul. It's a really amazing paper. I will post a link to it in the show notes. But in it, he argues that ectogenesis is going to be awesome because it's a step towards replacing our imperfect human bodies with machines. And that argument from 1929, I will remind you, sounds pretty familiar, right? I mean, that's the same argument that a lot of body hackers and futurists make today. Except that it's never really that simple, right? Oh, it never gets simpler. It never gets easier. Uh, But, you know, it's biology. It's erratic. It's individual. It's never going to be simple. It's never, ever going to be perfect. That's all for this Back to the Future episode of Flash Forward. We're back on our regular schedule next month, June 6th. You'll hear a brand new future. It involves Mars. It's going to be really fun. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelip. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you have ideas for possible futures, or if you have a past episode you'd like for me to revisit, send me a note. You can email me at info at flashforwardpod.com or get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, pretty much all of the things. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that, too. We have a Patreon page where you can donate to the show. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about us. That really does help. Okay, see you in the future.